This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to Think Health. Ellen Lee with you. Today, should individuals suffering from anorexia be committed to hospital involuntarily? It is possible to sort of come to a decision sometimes that the quality of life of this person isn't going to be improved by involuntary treatment and it might be determined that that person shouldn't be forced to stay in hospital and receive treatment against their will. And it's National Stay in Bed Day. But what if you struggled to get out of bed? We explain the ins and outs of mitochondrial disease. But first on the program, with health budgets across the globe exploding, nurses are emerging as one of the best ways to keep costs down. In hospitals, for example, studies have shown that for every 10% increase in the number of nurses with a bachelor's degree, patient mortality is reduced by 7%. Yet when health budgets are slashed, nurses are often the first to go. Dr Francis Hughes has recently been appointed Chief Executive Officer for the International Council of Nurses. She has previously held senior leadership positions with the World Health Organization and most recently as Chief Nursing and Midwifery Officer for the Queensland Department of Health. Dr Hughes joined Think Health to discuss how nurses can influence government policy and how they can reduce the budget bottom line. Nursing has produced phenomenal leaders. Um, We have a lot of our education is around strengthening leadership. So I would say there's millions of nurse leaders across the globe. The issue is can they make the impact and influence the way they are designed to? And that's the issue is we need to ensure that they can impact on their governments and policy decisions that affect health of consumers in their countries. You were the chief nurse and midwifery officer for Queensland Health. What did you do in that role? I was the department's, I suppose, authority on nursing and midwifery for the state. Um, It's not that I controlled the nurses in the state because I didn't, but I was there to ensure that the government policy was operationalised and that nurses were well informed and understood and, and contributed and also that nursing issues and, and the contribution of nursing was understood at policy level. So I showed evidence of nursing. I profiled what nurses were doing. I ensured I had good data and information. I dealt with when there was arguments about whether they should cut nursing. I produced evidence about how foolish that can be for outcomes of consumers, how it's not cost effective to slash and burn nursing. Um, but I had to do that in, a, in an evidence-based approach. It's not a, you can't you can't be emotional about this stuff because it's a, it's often an economic argument. It's coming down from treasury or finance people. Where does this idea come from that it is good to slash and burn nursing? Um, it's because we're the largest 
item in salaries on the spreadsheets in any hospital health system. We are. Sometimes it's like low-hanging fruit to people that don't know any different. They say the easiest things to cut is wages and salaries, so we're either dumbed-down nursing or bring in cheaper people to do the same job. Well, that's just foolish. We have enough research around the world with you know 40 to 50 countries where if you start reducing the role of the RN, replacing them with less skilled workers, you have a blowout of quality and actually you can kill patients. The registered nurse, the amount of clients and patients that they have, if you increase the numbers that they have, their mortality goes up by 7%. And we know that's how we get the nurse ratio argument. So there's enough evidence around that through large data sets of information. Do you think governments listen to evidence? Politicians do what they need to do to stay elected. That's what they're there for do. You do get alignment at times where you get absolute alignment that they will put the belief about what they should be doing for the public who voted them in and good government strategies, good public policy and they can do fantastic things. But at times... They turn over very quickly, politicians turn over, and they just get caught up in the in the politics rather than the policy. And they should be concentrating more on the policy because you can't turn on and off healthcare. You can't turn on and off nursing. Healthcare is kind of one of those interesting things because if you're a politician, it's highly, highly unlikely that you've never stepped foot in a hospital. And whenever you do go to hospital, it is the nurses that you see. I know. But the issue is most of the time is organised medicine that they listen to. What's organised medicine? Well, the medical AMAs of this world. Australian Medical Association. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They listen to them and they're not actually seeing the full picture of healthcare. Nurses are not doctor servants. They haven't been for centuries. We are legitimate, well-educated, highly professional beings functioning with or without medicine around us. We are naturally good team players and we work well in MDTs. But What's MDT? And multidisciplinary teams with others like physios and allied health and things. But it comes a time when you've, you, there is, we cannot continue with the expenditure that's occurring at the moment in healthcare no countries can afford it. Consumers can't afford the co-payments. They can't afford the private medical. We have to be able to do things differently. We have to stop people going to hospital that don't need to go to hospital. We've got to maximise the role of um, all practitioners to their full licence, and nursing is the biggest one. We need to allow nurses to do what they were educated and trained to do, and that would help a great deal to keep people out of hospital, to allow people to have a better experience in hospital, and actually reduce adverse events and death. Do you see the scope of nursing widening over the next decade? Nursing will go wherever the consumers are going. Nursing is totally um, the partnership role and responsibility of the nurse is to have a partnership responsibility with the consumer or patient. As consumers start to get more literate in health, start to have um, different technologies around them. There's absolute big changes. I've been in the US and spent three days with retail health clinics. These are nurses who are functioning in Walmarts and shopping and in big supermarkets. They are doing amazing things. Now, they're not... Some of those consumers may never go near a hospital or or what we may see as a traditional practices. And they're doing an amazing job. 
that's what's the most important. We've got chronic disease staring us down the barrel of diabetes and these illnesses are, are going to suck up all our resources in the system. We have to manage them better. We have to work with consumers differently. And nurses are key to that. So in that American example, you're going to Walmart, yep. grabbing some bananas, yep. you know, yep, 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 toiletries, yep. and yep. you yep. go to see the nurse. Yep. And it's a nurse practitioner. So these are the advanced nurses. So they do assessments. They prescribe. They have time with consumers. It's called convenient care. They're not taking, they're not the medical home of the consumers, but they are there for consumers that need them. And that's what we have to get real about. We can't keep provider driven services, i.e., consumers can't always fit around when we want to look after them and when we want to treat them and when our opening hours. And so, what the retail health has done is flipped that over. They're open from eight in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. You know, and you can go in there. You can have your your screening done. You can have your chat with your nurse practitioner. You can you can have a great deal of treatments done, and it's convenient. And this convenient care that would yep. drive down the cost of healthcare. Huge. The data that came out of those that those sessions was amazing, absolutely amazing. So, of course, private insurers now are reimbursing clients who go to those nurses. Because that's always the big issue. It's not that nurses can't do the work and it's not that we're not educated to do the work, but usually people don't want to pay for it because organised medicine usually stops nurses getting reimbursed for doing the same services they do. Now, that's anti-competitive, but that's now been broken by this by this issue with the convenient care because Walmarts and these big massive industries, they went to they went and fought for it. And so now the, the insurance industries and, and payers in the US now pay the nurse practitioner for the same service as they would if they had it elsewhere. Dr Francis Hughes, Chief Executive Officer for the International Council of Nurses and a UTS Alumni Award winner in the Faculty of Health. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3 online at 2ser.com or on your favourite podcast app. Anorexia nervosa is one of the only types of mental illness you can't hide and many of us will have sympathised with the sufferer as they have walked past us in the community. Recovery is possible but different treatment options work for different people. In severe cases, one treatment option is involuntary admission into hospital. Dr Sasha Kendall is a researcher in the UTS Faculty of Health. She has devoted her PhD to questioning the ethics of this decision. Dr Kendall spoke to Sam King. It's essentially defined by three main characteristics. So significant restriction of energy intake that leads to dramatic weight loss. Secondly, an intense fear around gaining weight, even when your weight might be significantly low. And and the third sort of factor that would be involved in a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa is experience of one's body shape or a disturbance in the way one's body weight and shape is sort of perceived and experienced. 
it's such a striking mental illness and you see these pictures of people that have you know gone right to the edge uh, and it's sort of I, i've heard before that they don't really see themselves going in that direction until it's too late is, is that the case um, I think it, I think it varies, and I think for many of us, we we might be able to perhaps recall a memory of someone who we could see in our community who always wore black clothes and always sort of you could see them walking around the community. And you know, I think just last year there was a case of um, a, a woman who is sort of known as a, the walking woman uh, in the Northern Territory of Australia who who very sadly died from the illness. Why was she known as the walking woman? Well, she she just walked all, all the time, all around her community. So I think it is a striking illness. Visually, it, it, it is striking and, and, and can be quite distressing to see somebody in that sort of state of, of unwellness where you can see somebody persisting with something that, from your own point of view, is clearly very harmful. People's with anorexia nervosa, their degree of insight into into their illness really varies quite a lot. You know, the typical age onset of someone with anorexia nervosa is, is quite young, and most people recover from the illness while still young, sort of in their adolescent years. But I suppose the longer somebody has the illness, the more complicated their insight into the illness can be because of long-term effects on the brain from starvation. And the more intensive the treatment program as well, Aisha. Um, yes and no. There's more evidence for treatment success when when a person hasn't been unwell for too long. So what you often see is a much more active approach to treatment when clinicians are working with adolescents or with people who haven't experienced the illness or been diagnosed with the illness for long because generally speaking, you're more likely to get a better treatment outcome the less somebody has been unwell. The longer somebody stays unwell, the harder it is to treat and the less treatment interventions there are to offer. So at that point, it becomes really tricky for clinicians to decide, what do I have to offer here how can I compel somebody into treatment? And I guess that leads us to this idea of involuntary treatment, which is what I really wanted to get into today. What does that look like? So typically, if, a, if an adolescent is refusing treatment, um, clinicians would look to parents to sort of consent to treatment on the adolescent's behalf. With adults, there is nobody who can consent on their behalf most of the time, and so that's a different story. So there's there's two sort of pieces of legislation that cover the use of involuntary treatment in New South Wales. The Mental Health Act is one, and guardianship legislation can also be used. So in a public hospital system, for example, if somebody comes into an emergency department displaying symptoms of that look like an eating disorder, you know, severely malnourished, perhaps they're having cardiac problems. It's determined that the person needs to be seen by a psychiatry because that person has an eating disorder. Either the person's told them that themselves or somebody who's brought them in can can tell them that. And then I guess there needs to be a decision, okay, around whether or not this person uh, needs to be kept in the hospital and receive treatment. And if that person is refusing that, then a decision needs to be made about whether or not there's grounds to hold that person in the hospital uh, against their will. How do you keep someone in a hospital against their will? There are public hospitals that contain locked wards and, and within those wards there are patients that are there voluntarily and you know in exceptional circumstances in you know in limited number of cases there are also people that are there involuntarily as well. Are we talking about being forcibly given medication, being forced to eat? What, what, what sort of 
processes go into that, I guess, if you're comfortable talking about it? Yeah, I mean, there's a range of things that may be considered for somebody with severe anorexia nervosa. So if somebody has been malnourished and, and barely eaten for a really long period of time, there are actually dangers involved in refeeding that person. It needs to be really closely monitored. There are significant harms to that person that could be caused without that monitoring. So in some instances, if a, if a person is refusing to eat and they could die as a result of that decision, people can be fed through a, a tube and, and that might be something that's called for in severe cases. But if that's not called for, what would ideally happen is there'd be some level of collaboration between the patient and the treating team that a certain sort of meal plan needs to be followed and that would be as I said closely sort of supervised within that treatment environment. It blows my mind that there's so many variables involved you know like not, not only is each patient unique but the competence beliefs and uh, even professionalism of every person involved in the decision making and treatment process can vary uh, just based on human nature. How can we ensure that each individual patient who may need involuntary treatment receives the best possible care? You make a good point. It is extremely complex, particularly for those adults who may have had the illness for a long time. And most professionals working in this field would make a sort of a distinction between, you know, severe chronic patients or patients who present with very severe and acute symptoms of the illness, as opposed to, say, catching somebody in there, a much younger patient who maybe hasn't been unwell for so long that their symptoms are so so awful. It it is fraught and there is a lack of consensus within the professional community around around involuntary treatment and when it's justified. So certainly there would be clinicians in the field that say you should never give up hope that a patient might recover and therefore, you know, involuntary treatment to preserve life is always justified. You know, there have been cases where a treating team who has known a patient for a long time and where literally every single treatment intervention has been tried and hasn't worked, in agreement with the patient there's been, it is possible to sort of come to a decision sometimes that the quality of life of this person isn't going to be improved by involuntary treatment, that the clinical team does not have treatment to offer and that person it might be determined that that person shouldn't be forced to stay in hospital and receive treatment against their will. So a lot of these decisions are, to a degree, arbitrary. It becomes a professional call at some point to say, you know, we have tried everything. You know, you shouldn't compel somebody against their will unless you can say with a degree of certainty that what you're going to do is going to do them good and, on top of that, that it shouldn't do them harm. And and there is no cure for anorexia nervosa. So there's lots of treatment methods that are shown to work and certainly, as I said before, the, the earlier patients receive treatment much better outcomes. So we're really talking about a small group of patients where it becomes this complicated. Just to wrap up, best case scenario, what would mm. you like to see, I guess, change about treatment practices over the next few years? So more research in this area, I think, will be 
a great thing for informing new treatment responses. I think listening to people's experiences as well of treatment is also valuable. And there is, again, more research around that that sort of reports on patient experiences and the things that actually make a difference to people. They might be things that are hard to find evidence for, but they are things that patients retrospectively can say, well, that was the thing that helped me. So patients talk a lot about the impact of their relationships with staff as something that has helped them to get through treatment, whether it be involuntary or voluntary. Dr Sasha Kendall speaking to Sam King. And if this story has raised any issues with you, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Well, if you need an excuse to stay in bed, today is National Stay in Bed Day. Most of us love any reason to spend extra time between the sheets to relax with a book or have a nap. But for the estimated 120,000 Australians who have mitochondrial disease, bed can become a prison as it becomes near impossible to leave it. Mitochondria are part of every cell in your body, and they turn the food we eat into energy the body can use. If your body can't produce this energy, then your organ systems can fail. It's a debilitating and often fatal genetic disease. Sean Murray is the CEO of the Australian Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. Sean spoke to Nina Copel. So mitochondrial disease occurs when the mitochondria themselves are not working properly. And so one of the symptoms or one of the things that can happen is that that energy production process can be broken down. So the cells or the mitochondria are not producing enough of that energy that the cells need. And the cells then starve of that energy and they don't function properly. And the organ system that those cells are a part of can then start to be compromised. And because we have the mitochondria all over our body, mitochondrial disease can cause symptoms in any organ system that can cause symptoms at any age um, as well. So it's not necessarily something you're born with? Because it's a genetic disease, you are born with the genetic predisposition, but you don't necessarily show symptoms from day one. Um, and this is one of the complex things about mitochondrial disease. We, it can affect children at some birth, but it can also happen at an, what's called an adult onset as well. So symptoms don't present until later in adulthood. You've kind of hinted at the fact that it can manifest in different ways. What are, what are some of the visible signs or, or symptoms that people who have it express? Yeah, it, it does present in many different ways. And even within the same family where siblings have the same genetic change, it can present in vastly different ways. It can affect, as we've said before, any part of the body, but typically those organ systems that are quite energy-hungry So your brain consumes a vast amount of energy. So symptoms are often presented related to neurological function or developmental delays, etc. We know it also can affect our large muscle groups. So people would have trouble with exercise intolerance or easily fatigued. It can also affect our heart, our, our gut our eyes, our ears, our pancreas, our liver, etc. And and patients who have significant or serious mitochondrial disease will often be presenting with multiple organ system issues. So some examples of that are they may have hearing loss, suffer from diabetes-like symptoms and also have issues with their heart or something like that. So we know that that 
gets very serious as, it, as the disease progresses. What made you interested in this area of health and research? You know, I, had a, I have a family connection with mitochondrial disease. We know now, going back for generations. But we first became aware of it when my brother, who was just 34 at the time, presented to hospital with what was thought to be a stroke. And that's quite unusual in an otherwise fit and young, healthy person. Um, and some, he just ended up at the right place where there was a person there who did the investigations and it, it didn't show to be a classic stroke, so it wasn't presenting with the investigations that they'd done. It wasn't presenting to have the normal pathology. Um, and then they looked into family history, etc., and saw that my mother had also been unwell my grandmother had also been unwell and her sister, etc. And so we're able to quickly identify that this wasn't indeed a traditional stroke but was what's called a mitochondrial stroke or a stroke-like episode. So we, we knew that from the late 90s and he, he presented with that and then my family and I, we all got you know, tested and um, diagnosed as having this genetic change that can cause the disease. And then, unfortunately, um, my brother passed away probably about a year after the Australian Mitochondrial Disease Foundation was established by our chairman, Doug Lingard, and one of the Australia's leading clinicians, Professor Carolyn Sue, who actually was caring for my brother. So I'd already been involved in the foundation, but um, my, you know, my family's experience with my brother passing away and subsequently my mother passing away from mitochondrial disease really firmed my resolve to, to do whatever I could for this cause. So it's it's taken a huge toll on, on your family. Is is there a cure? Is is there a way of treating this? Largely, no. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of pharmacological treatments out there. Um, we we know that one of the things that is recommended to patients is really optimizing their health, making sure that they're extremely vigilant about nutrition, about rest about minimising or avoiding toxins, be those environmental, physiological or emotional stresses on their, on their body uh, and really trying to plan for trying to keep this whole, your body system just going in this even keel. Uh, one of the promising things that wasn't really as, as prevalent as we saw when we started the foundation seven or so years ago, we're on the cusp, I feel, of, of some wonderful developments. There are a lot of drugs in clinical trial now, certainly more so than were, was the case seven or so years ago. So I feel that we're on the cusp of some treatments, some pharmacological treatments. It is early days. It is a young field. It's a field in its infancy, this mitochondrial medicine. So we're, we are certainly at the early stages of that. But it, it really feels like we're at the cusp of some good breakthroughs at the moment. I want to ask you about one of the areas that is being researched um, around the world in this area, which is mitochondrial donation. Is that something that is being looked into and is it a, a, a plausible option? Mitochondrial donation is a, a preventative IVF technique looking at um, preventing the transmission of some types of mitochondrial disease from an affected mother onto her child. And the, the way it is it proposed to work is looking at basically doing uh, an organelle transplant as such. So if people are familiar with organ transplants where somebody might get a heart transplant or a liver transplant, etc. The mitochondrial donation is really looking at transplanting this faulty mitochondria in an egg or an embryo with mitochondria from a donor. 
basically replacing the unhealthy mitochondria with healthy mitochondria from a donor and therefore looking at minimising the possibility of passing on the mitochondrial disease to the resulting child from that, that pregnancy. It's, it's quite a, a complicated issue, isn't it? I mean, in a family like yours where you know there is a, a prevalence, is that an option that you might consider in the future or you think could, could help your family in the future? One of the nuances about mitochondrial donation is that it, I mentioned it affects, sorry, it would only be relevant for some mitochondrial diseases. You could argue it's roughly half. Half of them are caused by changes in the mitochondria themselves and the other half are caused by changes in our nuclear DNA. So it's certainly something for my family, and uh, it's possibly you know a little late for, say, my generation. My sisters and I have all had our children, but... Um, it's certainly something that might be relevant to the next generation in terms of looking at minimising the risk of passing on this you know, potentially terrible disease to their children. Sean Murray, CEO of the Australian Mitochondrial Disease Foundation, speaking to Nina Copel. If you'd like to find out more about mitochondrial disease or anything else you heard today, visit our website 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You can find links to all our past stories as well as transcripts from today. You can also subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Health. If today's program has raised any issues, go and see your GP. Think Health is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Leibeter. Thanks for your company.